At this time in the service, I'd like to invite you to consider the gospel with me. The wisdom of God and the character of God as he has chosen to reveal himself through the scriptures. As a community, we've been studying the ninth and 10th portions, um, the ninth and 10th sections of the Bible called in English, 1st and 2nd Samuel. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Second <coughs> Samuel chapter 18 and verse 31, if you have a blue Bible that is um, like this with no stripes down the back, it's on page 250 something, 256. If you, have one, if you are lucky enough to grab one of the old blue Bibles that have the golden stripes on the back, you're on your own. <laughs> if you're able and willing uh, to stand with me for the reading of God's word, I invite you to do that at this time. Second Samuel 18 and verse 31 reads as follows. Then the Cushite arrived and said to King David, My Lord, the king, hear the gospel. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, May the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken, and he went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, O my son Absalom, Beni, Beni, Avshalom, if only I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son. These are the very words of God. You may have a seat. If I say to you, semi-autonomous driving, uh, what does that do for you? Does that, you know, do you get excited about that kind of thing? Does that mean anything to you whatsoever? Car manufacturers and uh, engineers every year are developing new ways for cars to do things on their own. Semi-autonomous. Okay, so I was at this guy's house in Chicago this week, and he said to me, while I'm laying in bed, I can get on my phone, open my garage door, turn my car on, and it'll back itself out the driveway for me. I said to him, I drive a 1988 Forerunner. The only thing it does while I'm in bed is deteriorate. <laughs> okay? Um, you know, it, it, parallel parking or, you know, different sensors and things are, are being developed to aid and, and keep people safe while they're driving, which I love. Um, I think it's brilliant. Planes and boats have been using technology to uh, assist the trajectory of the vehicle uh, for many years that we call autopilot. But if you're like me and you're a part of the Commonwealth, you'll never be driving a Tesla or an airplane. We had to settle for things like cruise control. <laughs> I've always been kind of um, into cruise control, you know. I mean, I remember as a kid, I grew up in a church building, okay. Back then, they would call it the parsonage, right. And so uh, when my parents were 
you know, ministering to people after the service was over, we would, this would be the most unsupervised time of my life. And we oftentimes would go get the keys to their car and just drive around the parking lot and the yard and just sort of do things. Well, after watching an episode of The Night Rider, my brother and I, you know, we're kind of like really wondering how Michael Knight drove this car in reverse so fast. I mean, he had to have been going like 60, 70 miles an hour in reverse. And so we were just trying to see how fast we can go in reverse in the car, you know, to try and emulate this. And then I thought to myself, I wonder if old Michael Knight ever put the cruise control on in reverse. Well, we found out that at like five miles an hour, it doesn't really work. But once you get like 10, 15, 20, the cruise control actually does work for some cars in reverse. And so as we're kind of getting faster and faster, going back and forth in the parking lot, I started to realize that it's easy to lose control when all of the weight of the vehicle is in the back. And I started overcorrecting the steering and started to spin and go out of control. And it's a dirt driveway, and so just things are getting bad quick. And it was one of the most scariest times of my life because I had no... I mean, 15 to 20 miles an hour backwards and sideways is way faster than 15 going straight, you know. And so finally we ended up stopping and I learned a valuable lesson. Cruise control, when abused, when not used in the proper time, can put myself and others around me in danger. Surely this was invented for, uh, to assist the uh, driver during um, times of driving that are somewhat uneventful and temporary, okay? Uneventful and temporary times. And abusing the cruise control can put people in danger. And I bring that up this morning because I want to stop here. At the, uh, we're nearing the end of the summer and evaluate our lives. Sometimes we really give ourselves permission to put a lot of things on cruise control. And if I know anything, there's one relationship in life that we should not put on cruise control. And it's our relationship with God. Have I given myself permission to put God on cruise control? It's a simple evaluation that I think this morning we could take our time to evaluate ourselves. Have I put God on cruise control and am I happy with the direction this relationship is going? Is he on autopilot? And the reason why I bring that up... (laughs) is because I've got an inkling about David that's developed over several chapters now that the the main character of the story that we've been studying has put God on cruise control. And things are starting to spin out of control in his life, and he's not only putting himself at risk, but the people that are around him. If you've been reading along or paying attention, attention, perhaps you have also seen um, where this is starting to happen. Remember back in chapter 7 and verse 1. What does it say? David sat in his palace and he was given, and the Lord gave him rest from all of his enemies. Now, on the one hand, this is a very beautiful moment for him. 
remember like 15 years earlier when Samuel showed up to his house while he was just a shepherd boy and anoints him the next king of Israel. It had been nothing but a battle for him for over a decade to get to this point. Of course, this is a wonderful, victorious moment for him to relax and rest and breathe. But don't you know that in life, when we're winning, when we're feeling on top, like we, have th- like we have it under control, this is the moment where we start to put things on cruise control with the Lord. Very often, this is the moment where we start to say, actually, I think I could probably take it from here. Why don't I see how the crown fits on me for a while? And decisions start getting made uh, without consulting God. You can see in chapters 8 through 10, I counted over six, I mean at least six, six communities of people that David attacks and conquers. And I'm thinking to myself, why is he doing this? If God just gave him rest from all of his enemies, why is he going out and making more enemies? Now I can't necessarily vilify him because two times in those chapters it says the Lord was with David and everything that he did. Okay, so I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. In the end of chapter 10, we see two countries make an agreement with each other. We're tired of messing with David. We want to make peace with him and just sort of leave him alone. So David, again, has rest from all of his enemies. David's winning. David's in control. He's on top. And we start to see David uh, not do what he used to do and consult the Lord for his actions. Chapter 11, what Pastor Rod shared on last week, begins with this very famous verse. And in the spring, when kings go out to war, David stayed home. And so I'm thinking, great, maybe David's going to stay home and start working on uh, using his resources to become a blessing to all nations uh, like he's supposed to. But that's not exactly how the verse reads, is it? In the spring, when kings go out to war, David sends his army out to battle And he stays home. So he's still picking fights with people. But now he's just decided to stay home and do other things. David's playing chess. And when David starts making decisions, it gets, it goes from bad to worse. David, the first decision he makes, he ruins a marriage. He tries to cover it up by killing one of his friends and ends up killing several several of his other friends in the process. God's been on cruise control for a while and things are starting to spin out of control. The pastor of the town, his name's Nathan, right? He comes to David's house and he says, David, I have, um, you know, some bad news. I heard about this rich guy who has all kinds of resources at his disposal. He has a traveler come and visit him. His traveler's like, do you have anything for me to eat? Of course, you know, I have some schnitzel or, you know, some pita or something for you to have. He tells his servant, go next door. Well, next door lived a poor man who only had one lamb. He loved the lamb. He made it kind of like a son to him. The whole family loved the lamb. The servant, uh, by command of the ruler, goes next, the rich man goes next door, takes the lamb. And provides the meal for the sojourner with that lamb. Can you believe this, David? David's furious. 
probably feeling things like, I can't believe someone would do this. I have worked so hard to let this kingdom be a peaceful place, that there's rest finally here. I can't, how could somebody be so selfish to take from somebody next door, especially when he has resources of his own? And after a pause, Nathan looks to David and he says, it's you. I know everything. I know everything that you've done. You're the rich man. And then he starts to uh, rebuke David and chew him out. He starts, he goes, I think, seven verses of him just firing at David. And David only says two words in response in Hebrew. In English, it's six words. Classic, right? And, uh, okay, never mind. Um, (laughs) uh, Okay, uh, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. These six humble words of this man. I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't try and justify it. He doesn't fight back. He owns it. And because of his repentance, Nathan says, uh, you're not going to die. You're not going to die for this, but it's going to have consequences. Your life is going to, uh, you're going to experience consequences for your sin. Something that a lot of us don't necessarily believe in. That there are consequences to our sin. Chapter 13 to 18, we see four unspeakable, tragic, and painful uh, things that happened to David. And I want to talk to you about those four things this morning. Not necessarily uh, their individual circumstances, (coughs) but I think it would be wise for us to look at the way David responds to them and ask ourselves, is this a man who has God on cruise control? Or is this a man who's passionately pursuing God? And it's important that we make that uh, observation. But before I do that, I just want to make a disclaimer. (coughs) When we look at these, I don't want to make light of these circumstances. They're some of the most painful things that humans can experience. And I don't want to look at them and say, oh, if he hadn't sinned, that wouldn't have happened. If he had just been pursuing God, that wouldn't have happened. That's not true. There's no way to parse that out. People who pursue God experience these same things. But what I want to look at is, is how does he respond in the midst of this pain and dark moment? Because that's important. Because remember what Jesus said. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth, Christian. If salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? You're a city on a hill. And the light in the daytime that you are, you know, it may not be that relevant. But when the darkness comes, people are going to be looking for you. And if you're not ready to shine, where are they? They're going to be lost. So when darkness comes to your workplace, you're the light of the gospel in that. And people can look to you and give glory to God. When darkness comes to your marriage and family, you're you're ready Remember what Jesus said. He was faithful with little. We'll be faithful with much. It's important that we check our relationship with God and we evaluate where we are and say, am I pursuing God? Are there things that I am doing that will help that? And are there things that I am not doing that hurt that? Are you with me? Okay, I'm going to try. So the first thing that happens to David... Um, it's his son that is born with Bathsheba becomes sick. 
Sick for seven days, actually. And during those seven days, David fasts and prays. He, like, wears, like, weird clothes. And he, like, is just really trying to move God. Um, And you can see this at the end of chapter (coughs) 12. And something kind of peculiar happens. Okay, so after the seventh day, the child dies. Again, unspeakable pain. David, in verse 20, gets up from the ground. He washed his face, put lotion on, changed his clothes, went to church, and then he goes uh, to his house and asks for them to give him some food, and he ate. And I find this a little bit peculiar, and I feel justified in that because I'm not the only person that's finding this a little peculiar. The next thing that happens in verse 21 is his attendants are kind of like, his servants are like, what are you doing? Why are you acting this way? The child was alive and you fasted and wept. But now the child is dead and you get up and eat. They're like, dude, while he was alive, you, you, you were in pain and mourning. And now that he's dead, this is the time of mourning. And you're acting like nothing happened. What is David's response in 22? Well, I thought that while the child was alive, perhaps maybe the Lord would see, uh, uh, have mercy on me. But apparently he won't. Apparently he won't act gracious to me, so why should I fast? What's the point? If you want to evaluate your relationship with the Lord this morning, one of the questions that I find helpful to ask myself is this. Am I treating God like a genie? A sign of an unhealthy relationship with God is is that your prayer life has become more of a laundry list or more of some magical wand that you're trying to wave over your life. God has become somewhat of a genie. And I say that in this instance because David clearly is just now showing up to ask God for something. And when he doesn't get it, he just walks away. So what do you do when God says no? Because we all have emergencies, we all have crisis, we are going to see darkness uh, come over our lives and our families, and we all are going to ask God to move. It's easy to make our emergency God's emergency, but what will you do if God decides to say no? Well, it's hard to get mad at somebody who has the right to say no and the right to say yes. But it's easy to resent someone who you think has to say yes. It's easy to get mad and start doubting the goodness of something that you think when you deserve a yes. It's easy to doubt a genie's unconditional love for you. But of course he has the power to do something he chose not to. Has God become a genie to you? Let's evaluate your relationship with the Lord. Evaluate your prayer life. And just take a moment. Am I treating God like he's a genie? Just getting a, a, a bunch of things for him to do, a honey-do list. Am I choosing when I walk away from this based on if I get the right answer or the answer that I want? 
Am I treating God like he's done wrong to me for choosing not to follow my directions? Prayer is much more than just a time to ask God to do things. My friends, Jesus has made a way for us to be connected to God in such an intimate and deep way. We are like in the womb of God, and, and, and it's like a, a baby acknowledging the umbilical cord. You know, it's such a, a mysterious thing to say, I am connected to God. But can you believe that we can acknowledge God's nearness to us everywhere that we are? See, prayer is not something that we just employ to get out of a situation. Prayer is something that we can have in every situation that confirms our companionship with God, that confirms his nearness and presence to us in this moment of darkness. Even if he says yes or no, he is with us and he always cares about what we say and he always cares about us. Something to think about. Then David gets numb and becomes more detached. (coughs) As we move on into chapter 13, we see David's family starting to spin out of control. I like to look at it like removing the sun from the solar system. Removing the gravity that dictates this unified dance of planets uh, will make everything start to spin out of control and into chaos. Removing the central relationship of David's life is starting to affect everybody around him. So David has a son, his oldest son, his name's Amnon. And then through another wife, he has two beautiful children named Tamar and Absalom. They're kind of described to be like supermodels. Absalom has long, beautiful hair, and it says he has no blemish from the head, top, top of his head to the bottom of the foot of his sole, sole of his foot. And apparently Tamar is just as beautiful, given the obsequious nature of her brother Amnon, uh, his uh, infatuation with her. He he, He can't stop thinking about her. He's made himself sick because of this. As you can see, Amnon lures Tamar into his bedroom, tricks her into being alone with him, He takes her and he rapes her. He adds insult to injury by then casting her out into the community, shaming her publicly, and ruining her life. Absalom, as any brother should, is furious about this and waits two years for justice. Nothing happens. And so Absalom takes matters into his own hands. Absalom has a sheep shearing party at his house and invites all of his family to it. He instructs his servants at his queue to take probably the sheep shearing equipment and to attack Amnon and kill him. They follow his orders. He takes responsibility for this, and the last eyewitness sees him tra- trailing off into, off into the horizon northeast to Gesher, where his grandpa Talmai is the king. Because we all know where you go when you're in trouble. It's to your grandparents' house. 
<laughs> terrible, terrible things are happening in this family. And you have to ask yourself, where's David? Well, verse 21, we see David hearing about the uh, sexual abuse of his daughter, and he's very angry. Okay, verse 31, we see him uh, hear about the news of Amnon, and he's extremely sad. Verse 39, we see him just daydreaming about reconciliation with his son Absalom. All very natural emotions to have and inappropriate in this time. But why doesn't he do anything? I mean, I understand if somebody does nothing, if they have zero resources or, or zero know-how or, or, or not the ability to step in. But this is the king of the nation. His record is like 57 and 0. He can, and he has all the resources and all the ability to do that. Why does he just sit there? Well, what do you do? I'll tell you, the bare minimum of what you can do in this situation is obey God at his word. And so the second thing I want to put forth before you is an evaluation of your relationship with God based on how... Uh, based on the centrality of the scriptures in your life. One of the ways that I can kind of infer that David's having God on cruise control right now is is that there are some very clear biblical passages that he is responsible to at least follow or put forth into his community, and he chooses not to. Maybe because he doesn't know it. But, I mean, David did say... I meditate on the law both day and night. I mean, he's kind of the guy that's saying, I I treasure the scriptures. And if you read Deuteronomy 22, verse 28, it clearly says, if a man rapes a virgin, he is financially responsible for her for the rest of her life. No questions asked. He will be like a husband to her until she says, forget about it. At the very least, David could have said, this is going to be a mandate here. He does nothing. I wonder what would have happened if you had read Genesis 34 that morning where Levi and Simeon, you know the story where Dina gets raped, and um, they do something I would have done to to Shechem. Um, Because she had to be there. Um, If, uh, I can't get into that one. So... I wonder what would happen if the centrality of the scriptures was there. For this is a way that we uh, fuel the, the substance of our relationship with God and our convictions. Evaluate your relationship. Have you given yourself permission to stop pursuing God through his scriptures? I mean, when's the last time you read the Bible not just to get a theological answer out of it, to be right or something? Or when you, when you approach the Bible, do you say, God, who are you and what are you passionate about? And how can I align myself with your passion? I think a lot of people look at issues in our culture and our world and are just sort of overwhelmed by uh, the audacity of it or overwhelmed by the, the scope of depravity and just sort of give up. That feeling does not come from a person that's in the Word of God and reading and and learning about God. There's no way that you can read the Bible and sit here and look at issues in our world and say, that's too big. 
There's no way that you can believe that Jesus has, has, has actually triumphed over our deepest needs and then look out of the world and say it's unsolvable. Our city, I mean, take just you know, Tamar's example. You, you know, will you be David who hears of Tamar being sexually abused or of our city having, um, you know, human trafficking happening here? And will you just sit there and be angry? Is it enough? Is it enough to just be angry and just sort of be sad and sit on the sidelines? Is this, is this what we read God doing in his scriptures? God will fight for the, his daughters. God will fight for our sisters and women that are being abused. God will get in the game. And when I read the Bible, I see a God who says, I'm capable of doing this. You can win this battle. We can win this. Human trafficking can be stopped. God parted the Red Sea. It's not too far to cross. Look at Jericho's walls. They're not too thick or tall. They can come down. Remember what our Lord said. If you just have faith and believe in me the size of a mustard seed, even that deeply rooted tree... You can say to it, get up and cast yourself in the sea, and it will. That mountain that you thought was so tall, just have faith in me, and it will move. What's the intimidating mountain in your life or in your culture that you're looking at and saying, there's no way? The same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in all of us. Do you believe this? We don't go out looking for victory Jesus is victorious. We confirm the victory in our culture. So go confirm it. Chapter 15, we see Absalom return um, uh, back to Jerusalem. And (coughs) notice what he does. Chapter 15 and verse 1 reads as follows. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and 50 men to run ahead of him. He'd get up early in the morning and stand by the side of the road leading um, to the city gate. Whenever somebody came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call him out. Hey, where are you from? He would answer, and this, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Absalom would say to him, look... Your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only there was a judge appointed in the land, then everyone who has a complainer case could come to uh, me, perhaps, (laughs) me, maybe, and um, I would see that they would receive justice. Also, whenever anyone would approach him, he'd bow to the ground before him. And Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king and asked for justice. And he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Striking up these conversations just randomly with a comer and, you know, with someone coming to the city. If only there was somebody that would actually care about you, you know. And they're like, Absalom, aren't you next in line to the throne? Well, I don't know. I mean, guess technically maybe I would be. I mean, I wasn't really thinking about that. But yeah, sure. I mean, maybe I would be. 
Absalom then starts to, you know, play the house of cards, you know, with Israel here and make himself look good to be the next king. What does he do next? He says to David, you know, meet a, friend, a couple friends of mine. I want to go on a little spiritual retreat to Hebron. Okay, 20 miles, you know, south of Jerusalem. He takes a whole group of people down there. He tells his friends, hey, when you hear the shofar blow, I want you all to just start saying, Absalom is king, Absalom is king. And so the trumpet blows, they bust open this oil and anoint Absalom, and everybody starts screaming, Absalom is king, Absalom is king. And I know what you're thinking, is it that easy to really trick everyone into thinking you're king of Israel? Well, to be fair, they've never successfully done this before. The last king died in battle, right? And David kind of had to re- pick up the pieces where he left off. And so I know maybe people are thinking, oh, David's getting old. You know, Absalom, we kind of like for king. Maybe this is like a surprise announcement, you know? And we're all like really excited to see this. Okay, so anyways, they believe it and they start following Absalom. And he's going back to Jerusalem to assume the throne. David hears of this. And we're all like really excited because this is the point where David gets his mighty men and says, no, I am the king of Israel. I am the anointed one of God and teaches his son a lesson, puts him in his place and finally sits on the throne and becomes the man we've all been waiting for him to be. Okay, no, that doesn't happen. Actually, if you look closely, David just hangs up the crown and walks away. It's uh, verse 14. Come with me. We must flee. None of us will escape Absalom. We must leave immediately, and he will move quickly and overtake us and bring ruin to us in the city with the sword. Take note also of verse 22. No. for a verse here that's very interesting to me. It says that David is weeping and going up the Mount of Olives. He has his head covered and he has no shoes on. Oh, 30? Okay. Okay, David's just sort of walking away from his responsibility, walking away from his kingdom. He sort of hangs, you know, leaves the phone hanging on the cord. Remember that back <laughs> That was an old, kind of old-fashioned phone. No, the payphone. He leaves the payphone. Just okay. Anyways, and uh, he walks away. David's having an identity crisis in the midst of this civil war, and I wonder if this is a fruit of somebody whose relationship with God is completely flimsy. Hopelessness flourishes in the heart of somebody who has no relationship with God, and David just takes the people that he can get, and he walks off. And I'd wonder if some of us, even this morning, are to the point in, in our relationship where we, with God where we've become so jaded or just ambivalent towards our passion in life, and we're just one Absalom away from just walking off. We're just one fight away from just hanging up the phone and saying, forget about it. I mean, what do you do? When you feel that depression and that pain of, I don't know what I'm doing here anymore. 
Well, I'll skip forwards here for sake of time and, and just, you know, for all of us comprehension. Look to the end of chapter 17. Chapter 17 and verse 27 reads as follows. David then came to Mahanaim. Shobi, son of Nahash, okay, a guy from back to chapter 10, um, from Rabbah and the Ammonites, <coughs> and Makir, son of Amiel, from Lodabar, um, and Barzilia, the Gileadite, from Rogalim, brought bedding, bowls, pots. They brought wheat and barley, granola, beans and lentils, honey, curds of uh, milk, sheep and cheese from the cows of milk for David and for his people to eat. For they said, the people have become exhausted, hungry, and thirsty in the wilderness. A distinction that might uh, be some of yours relationship with God. Hungry and thirsty and weary out in the desert. Now watch closely. Chapter 18, verse 1. David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David set out his troops, a third under Joab, a third under Joab's brother, Abishai, and a third under Ittai the Gittite, a refugee who's only been in Israel two days at this point. Okay. David just likes him. And the king told, I'm going to go and march with you. Is anybody asking the question, how do you go from 1729 to 181? How do you go from, I'm walking off away from this thing, weeping, hungry, weary, and... Uh, whatever, in the wilderness, thirsty, in the wilderness, to scrappy-doo, I'm going to let's muster up everybody and go back and take, take the city. I don't know the answer, specifically. I have an idea, but it's just my best guess. Location matters. <coughs> David goes to a place called Mahanaim. Does anybody know what that is. I mean, it's referenced just few enough times to really be something that we should pay attention to. Mahanaim means two camps. Does that ring any bells? This, this town was named by Jacob back in Genesis. When Jacob was in a civil war of his own, He's got Esau in front of him, and he's got Laban behind him, and he doesn't know what to do either. This is the place where Jacob wrestles with God. Where Jacob asks God to bless him and will not release him until it happens. And where God says, I sure will. And he names him Israel and confirms that wrestling with him is something that he is okay with. And he gives Jacob a limp. So that he'll always remember the rest of his life. The God who's willing to wrestle with him. And his identity being born that night. What if David looked over at this place. And saw the story. Of this nation being named Israel. And then remembered his role is to be the king over Israel. And started to believe again in his identity. And woke up that morning and said let's go. And he musters up all these guys, and, and they're like, 
he's like, I'm going to go with you. And they go, no, you're like way too important to do this. And you don't even have shoes on. Okay, so just sit back. (coughs) And I wonder if even some of us have lost a little bit of our identity. And we need to go back to Mahanaim this morning. What if you need to go back, if you've lost some of that passion and that drive, the unction that you once had, and you just pray for a few minutes and think, back to that moment, maybe you've abandoned your first love. You've allowed things to sort of creep in and get in the way of your relationship with God. Take some time and go back to that place and say, God, bring me, bring me to the place where I first uh, encountered you and where, I f- and where I first experienced that relationship and passion. It's important to go there because we will overcome, my friends, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. When's the last time you spoke the word of your testimony even to yourself? Maybe when you were buried to death in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. Maybe when... Uh, when you just made that altar call commitment. I do a lot of weddings here. And one of the, my favorite parts is uh, during the vows, I usually invite other people in the crowd who are spouses to take the hand of their husband or wife and say the, say the vows in their own heart while the bride and the groom do it. Because you can never go to that place enough that place of commitment. And you can never go back enough to that place of, of passion and beauty and say, till death do us part. I said that. Evaluate your relationship with the Lord and maybe today would be appropriate for you to go to Mahanaim. Or maybe this is the day for you to say, God, give me my identity. The rest of the story... It's quite simple. David's army completely, uh, easily and effortlessly takes out Absalom's rebellion. And Absalom on retreat is, run, is riding through the woods and his hair gets caught up in the thorns of a tree and he gets <laughs> ripped off of his horse. And while he's hanging there, Joab comes by with the spear and kills him. And this brings us to the verses that we read before. When the Cushite comes and tells David... That Absalom is killed and David is crushed and says, My son, my son, would I not have died for you? We end this story. I'm going to ask the musicians uh, and artists to come back up uh, to help us respond. I'm sure that there's a lot of emotions going on. I mean, on the one hand, when when I read this, I think, of course, justice is served to the rebel. Of course we applaud when that happens. We all want that to happen. But then we also see the pain of this man, David, who has not lost one but three sons at this point. And he's crushed by this. And we say, isn't there a place for mercy? And that tension echoes throughout, the, throughout all of our lives. And that voice of David that cries, I would have died for you, Absalom. We all say, yeah, if I could go back, I would have done things different. If I could have a second chance, I would change this. I would do something. But he missed it. And we all know that pain of doing something wrong and not being able to fix it. 
But David might echo our heart's cry. I would have died for you. I would have done this. But he doesn't echo Jesus' cry. And the gospel is this. That Jesus, he didn't cry out, I would have died for you. Jesus cried out, it is finished. Jesus did die for you. For all of the Absaloms that are here and all the Davids that are here and everybody in between, Jesus says, I'll get my hair caught up in the thorns. I will hang from the tree and I will be stabbed so that you can be set free. So that you can have reconciliation with your father and that you can have healing and a second chance. If you would just receive uh, the forgiveness provided for you from Jesus. Let's take a moment to pray.